the Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week, and we're grateful to see you here today. Thank you, of course, to Pastor Terry and Pam for the opportunity to serve, and it's always a privilege to stand in the pulpit and bring God's Word to God's people, and I hope you're ready to receive this morning. Amen. Um, I, I actually, we're going to try and get adventurous, if that's okay. We're going to stretch ourselves this morning, if that's all right, because on the one hand, we want to acknowledge and really be present to the fact that it's Palm Sunday. But on the other side of the coin, Pastor Terry's laying some foundation in the house right now, right? And so foundation is absolutely essential for expansion and for endurance. How many of you would like to be seeing this house expand? And how many of you would like the work that's, that's going on to endure, right? You know, you can, you can be a hot flash in the pan fireworks, but the fireworks show is over and then you got to go home. We don't want that. We want something that endures and something that lasts. And so foundation is key to that. I love the fact that he's worked us through love, right? Love being the scent of the house. Love that willing the good of another. And humility, right? Humility, that sense where we, we're free from being obsessed with ourselves, right? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. That humility that frees up our focus to really be focused on others. And so with these priorities in place, we're also going to talk about the Word of God this morning. Because the Word of God has to be part of the scent of the house. The Word of God and a value for and a priority on the Word of God is foundational if this house is going to expand and if the work is going to endure. If we don't place a priority on the Word of God, we are going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Was it windy in New Jersey last night? You see, and wind is an interesting thing, right? You love when the breeze is blowing, but then there's a breeze that kind of makes you a little uncomfortable. And that's a lot like the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Okay, I didn't expect a lot of amens on that one, but maybe we, that's a good point to pray. Why don't we pray right now? Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you for this moment, for this day, for this hour, that we can be gathered by your spirit to hear your word. And I ask that you would anoint me right now, fresh anointing to bring a fresh word that is fit for this day, daily bread for this house, that you would nourish us, strengthen us, but God, not just with milk, with meat. Lord, not just to gather in the outer court, but to be drawn into the Holy of Holies, that we would behold your glory and be transformed thereby. And we ask this for the glory of the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. So this morning, we're going to, we got this dual purpose, right? We want to be talking about Palm Sunday and be present to the glory of this day. And we want to be talking about the Word of God. And I think we can actually bring the two together because the story of Palm Sunday is so magnificent. And so before we do this, I want to give you 10 things that reveal the power and potential of Scripture. 10 things that reveal the power and potential of Scripture. Are you ready? If you've got a pen, it's going to smoke this morning. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, 
Scripture plants us, nourishes us, produces fruit that will last. It brings discipline, reveals truth. It leads to freedom. You can say amen at any spot you want to. It forms, it is the basis of the language of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit talks to us, it's going to sound like Scripture. It sanctifies Jesus' followers. It is the very power of God for salvation. I'm going to wait on that one. Thank you. I got one amen. It communicates with our reborn spirit. It produces spiritual growth and maturity. It transforms us into Christ's image from glory to glory. It reveals right and wrong. It reveals how to get right and stay right. And it equips us for every good work. And it actively reveals us to us and through us. That's the scary one right there. We just sang that song earlier. Bread of heaven, you are the living word. Yeah, he's alive. He's living and active. And that's why we have to, at the outset here, we have to have a little bit of a warning time. Remember I said I was going to stretch you a little bit? There's a way in which we can think about the Bible that is unfaithful. I find that a lot of Christians, they're like on a pendulum. And they swing all the way over here. And their Bible is so dusty they got pages stuck together because they'd never been separated. They thought that one verse, what God has put together, let no man put us under, they thought that meant the Bible. They haven't cracked it open. It's, it's right there. It's a coffee table book. That, and, and that's a problem, saints. Think about all the ten things we just wrote down. Think about how the Holy Spirit wants to use that book in our lives. And if we never crack it open, if we're not daily in that word, the Holy Spirit's work in us is limited by us. And then we got the folks on the other end of the pendulum, and they think that they worship Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Mm. There's a thing called bibliolatry. It's the idolatry of the Bible. It got so quiet in here. And we don't want to be over there with dusty paperweights. But we don't want to be over here either with a Bible that somehow we can manipulate and control to our own ends. Can I go so far and to say the Bible never did anything? That's, uh, I told, that's, everybody just stretch a little bit right now. Say, he's stretching me right now. He's stretching me. The Bible never did anything. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to do God's work in God's people. You say, well, that, I don't know, Pastor. It sounds like you're talking heresy. Think about it this way. What's the, there are four Gospels. What's the first Gospel? Matthew. The first character in Matthew's gospel to use the Bible are the men who went to Herod to try and help him kill baby Jesus. They used the Bible to do that. 
Uh, okay, I'm st we're stretching. The serpent appears to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's got three words. Did God say? Uh, uh. Satan appears in the desert to Jesus, and he says three words. It is. You understand what I'm saying about this now? We're in trouble, aren't we? Because Satan uses the Bible. You realize in the Gospels, Jesus' enemies use the Bible more than Jesus. So I've got a couple things that I want to read for you, and I want to put them up on the screen so that you can see this. We must approach the biblical text with hunger and humility, earnestly desiring its wisdom, but with holy fear, lest we transform it from a tree of life into a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can rightly desire the Scripture, and you can lust after the Scripture. Let me say it this way. Next, take, keep your camera out. We grasp at this knowledge of good and evil, not because we're hungry for God, but precisely because we are not satisfied with God. We find the Scripture useful but not beautiful, which is how Satan finds it. Then we have been eaten up by the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to leave that on the screen for you for a minute. This book is the most dangerous book on any shelf. Satan finds this book very useful. Religious people worship this as a false god. And yet, we wrote down ten things that the Holy Spirit will do with this book. Will transform your life. Will bring you into the image of the glory of God using this book like a mirror, like a surgeon. He will come in and it will divide asunder your soul and your spirit. You got to remember, like any sharp blade, what the difference is is the intention of the user. What's a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon is the shiv in the hands of a mugger. Am I slipping them past you too fast? Listen, this is a sword. You're happy to see a sword, depending. If the person holding it is for you, it's a wonderful thing. If they're against you. A good friend of mine is a professor at Southeastern University in Florida, and he wrote a book called Sanctifying Interpretation, and it's about the Bible. And this is what, it said, what he said. We should be careful not to miss the point. The Scripture does not merely tell about salvation. Look at this phrase. By the Spirit's grace, the Scripture works salvation. Renewing our vision of the world by transforming us at the depths of our being. How many people want to be transformed? And once we're transformed, we begin to discover our place in the mission of God entrusted to the church 
and to bring his goodness and justice to bear in the lives of our neighbors and enemies. And this is where Palm Sunday and the word of God intersect. Because I believe that the word of God can help us perceive and participate in God's work. Without the word of God, we don't know what we're looking at, and we certainly don't know what we're supposed to be doing. I'm going to say that again. The scriptures in the hands of the Holy Spirit empower us to perceive, to see what God is doing, and participate, act with God in ways that accomplish his purposes, or as my friend Chris says, to bring his goodness and justice to bear in the lives of our neighbors and enemies. Y'all with me so far? Have I ruined things for you so far? Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Pastor Terry is like, this joker is never preaching again for me. He just wrecked the Bible. He just wrecked the Bible. So uh, can I just quickly give an aside, just as a personal pet peeve? I've been here a few times. I think I've, I have enough capital collateral to a pet peeve. The word of God is a really tough phrase for me because it is the name of the second person of the Godhead, first and foremost. And I fear using that word for this book. I'm not saying it's not that. You hear me? I'm not saying it's not that, but I fear. When I, when I start to call this book the word of God, this is the breathed out scripture. That's what the book says about itself. All scripture is breathed out by God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and by him all things came into being. Apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. This is the word of God. And the scripture, when read by the illumination and inspiration of the Spirit, reveals the word of God to us. So let me say it this way. I know I just said a lot of words, and that's my, I'm sorry. I just, the word of God is the story of Jesus. The Bible is the story of Jesus. All of it. All of it. Open that Bible. You're, we're about to go into high speed right now, so I apologize in advance. Open your Bible with me, if you would, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, starting at verse 37, we find Jesus speaking, and he says this. The Father who sent me, he has testified about me. Now look at this. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Also, you do not have his what? His word remaining in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. Now look at this next verse, 39. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is those very scriptures that testify about me. The Bible is not an end in itself. It is the pathway to the word. 
This is not spiritual technology. This is a spirit-and-breathed, supernaturally sourced text that God wants to use to keep his people his people, to move his people into his purposes. And so with all of this laid out, we're going to go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is our text for Palm Sunday. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses. It says, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them on immediately. Now this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them, and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now the crowds going on ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? I want to read that 10th verse again. When he had entered Burlington, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? One more time. When he had entered Philadelphia, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? How do you answer that question if you don't have Scripture? It's a matter of your opinion. Remember, Jesus asked a few chapters earlier, who do men say that I am? Notice all of their answers were informed by the Bible. So the, uh, what, some say you're Isaiah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're the prophet. Where'd they get those ideas? Guess what? They were all wrong. Am I, I, I will leave the Bible alone, I promise. I, this is not an assault on the Bible. This is trying to make sure that we're coming to the tree of life. This is trying to make sure that this is righteousness, joy, and peace to us, and it is not temptation to us. This is freedom and not control. This is satisfaction and not lust. This is inspiration and impartation, not merely information. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. Scripture affects our perception. It reveals. It changes what we see. Why do I say that? Look with me at verse 5. And we'll look at verse 4. This took place. Let's stop. Verse 4 is not an account of what happened. It's a statement inserted by Matthew to his audience to help them understand what happened. Jesus has sent his disciples on an errand, and Matthew says, time out. we got to stop here for a second. I want you to know why Jesus did this. 
I want you to see what's really happening here. And how does he reveal this to his audience? He uses scripture. What does it say in verse 4? Matthew tells his audience, P.S., this took place so that what was spoken through the prophets, the Nevi'im. You realize the Hebrew Bible is broken down into three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's saying what you heard about in the prophets, in that section of the Bible, he was fulfilling that when he did this. What did he fulfill? Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey. In other words, you see a man on a donkey, not a horse. Kings don't ride on donkeys, friends. President Biden spends a lot of time in Philadelphia, and he does not ride around in a hoopty. Hello. There is not rust on his SUV. He does not have a dent in the front fender of the SUV. He's the president of the United States. He did not land on Spirit Airlines. No offense if you flew Spirit this morning. I'm not, I'm not coming at you. Hello, you know what I'm saying? Because that's not how the leader of the free world rolls. This is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, the ancient of days, the one who has no beginning and has no end, the one who stands at your beginning and sees your end. This one comes up on a donkey? How do I make heads or tails of some guy showing up on a donkey? And Matthew says, well, let's go to the text. The text says this is your king. At some point, you're going to have to choose to believe what the Spirit is showing in the text rather than what your mind is seeing with its eyes. I see a man. I see a rabbi. I see a teacher. I see a popular guy riding on a donkey. Isaiah says, Zechariah says, that's your king right there. The Scriptures will upend your value system. The scriptures will look at things that are not and say they are. The scripture will take you out of your moment and put you into a bigger place. Why? Because Matthew is saying when he quotes the prophets, he's saying you can't understand this moment apart from history and you can't understand this moment apart from the future. Does anybody here suffer besides me from navel-gazing? You know, that thing that's right here at the, just above your belt. It's called a navel. I'm not talking about ships in the ocean. I'm talking about your belly button. Navel gazing. I look, I can see what's, I'm obsessed with what's at the end of my nose, but I don't see the big picture. Anybody ever find yourself, you're angry, you're caught up, you're ready to rip somebody's heads off, and it just, they took too long to start when the light turned green. Take a breath, relax. In the grand scheme of things, this is not an issue. Hello? Has that ever happened to anybody besides the guest minister this morning? Okay. Matthew is saying, listen, you can't understand your now if you don't understand what's gone on before. And you will make your now an ultimate moment if you don't know there's something coming on the other side. 
the worst thing we can do is live as a slave to the present. A present that is not anchored in the past and hopeful for a future. This is your king. See something that nobody else is seeing. You can't see it without scripture. And look at this. What happens? He shows up into town, and in verse um, 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now we, sign the, we see the action. The crowd is spreading their cloaks on the road. People are grabbing branches off of the trees, and they're waving their branches. It's interesting. In his sermon on this day, John Chrysostom says that these are people who are untaught. They're doing what they're doing based on instinct. They're doing what they're doing just in a sort of knee-jerk reaction. It's not judging it. It's not dismissing it. It's not saying it's bad. But on some level, it's saying immature, it's immature. It's unknowing. There's a verse in Psalm 47 that's quite interesting to me, and you can turn there if you want. If not, it's okay. The psalmist says, for God is king. Remember we said, this is your king, right? God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Always remember this, especially in our tribe. Any Pentecostals in the room besides me? I'm confessing my, okay, I got a couple. I'm going to, this is a safe place. You're safe here. Any Pentecostals in the room besides me, praying the Holy Ghost might stomp your foot every once. Okay, okay. My tribe, we're so guilty of praising and, and leaving a thing called your mind outside. Not really thinking through the implications of, for instance, what does it mean that he's the living word? See, praising with understanding asks questions. Praising with understanding probes the possibilities. Praising with understanding is praising that is anchored in the text, inspired by the Spirit. That's praising with understanding. There's a broader context here. Now think about this. Jesus was king that day. Jesus did walk in as the king that day. He was crucified five days later. He was tried before Pilate. He was tried before Herod. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was mocked. He was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was buried. Cold and dead, he was buried. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But it's easy. I've been in church my whole life, and it's so easy to dismiss what's happening on Palm Sunday as a mere whim. Because it is a whim, but it's more than a whim. Oh, you know, those people, they got caught up in the moment. They did get caught up in the moment. But you know what? Jesus was king the next Sunday, and he was king the Sunday after that. And he's been king 100 years after that. And it seems to me that for 2,000 years, every year, God's people have been getting together and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not once, not twice, but millions of times around this globe, his kingship has been rightly pronounced on the heels of this. 
and it's been pronounced by people who see Jesus, not just as a king in Zion, but as a king in their city. So I want to ask you this morning, who is this king? Do you see him in Burlington? Do you see him in Philadelphia? What is he up to in your city? How are you getting in on it in your city? See, the fact is, Jerusalem, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem, and it's not what God meant it to be. Jerusalem has been dominated by Rome. Pagan powers rule the day. Israel is still in exile, even though they're living in the land. Oh, the the exile was not over. Do you know the Jewish people still think they're in exile? The exile never ended for them because they never came home to freedom. They always came home to the domination of another. Jerusalem was not what God meant it to be. Can't we say the same thing about our cities today? You don't have to spend much time looking at the news to say this is not what God meant this city to be. Isn't it funny that Rome would allow the Jewish people to be fully Jewish as long as it didn't offend or threaten Rome's power? Can I tell you, we live in a world that is happy to let you sing your songs and be happy about Jesus right here in this room. But the moment stuff shows up in the city, the moment that the threat is fully realized, remember I said this is a dangerous book. If we start opening ourselves up to the possibilities of what this book says about us, about God, and about the world, look out world. And I'm here to say Jesus still rides into town. Jesus still rides into cities. And he does it as unconventionally now as he did it then on a donkey. You see, it's interesting when they throw their cloaks on the ground. Here's another way to use scripture. Is this the first time that people have thrown their cloaks on the ground? No, not at all. We find in 2 Kings chapter 9, using scripture, that when Jehu took out Ahab and Jezebel, the Israelites rejoiced by throwing their cloaks on the ground to welcome in a victorious king who had cast out evil. The most wicked king in Israel's history is a man named Ahab, who's almost as famous as his wife, right? And when he was dethroned, the Israelites celebrated, the children of God celebrated by throwing their cloaks on the ground. So what's happening in Israel when they're throwing their cloaks on the ground for for Jesus? To understand that, we have to know 2 Kings 9, and we also have to know John chapter 11. You see, in the Orthodox Church, Palm Sunday is preceded by what's called Lazarus Saturday. Lazarus Saturday is when the Orthodox Church celebrates what Jesus did in John chapter 11. And I want you to turn there with me because it's very important. We sang a song this morning talking about, I got up out of that grave. I think Lazarus might want to add a line to that song. I don't know. I could be wrong here. You know the story. Lazarus has been dead for four days. I love the King James Version here. I'm not going to lie. When they say to Jesus, Master, he stinketh. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. Every kid's verse, they love that verse, right? We want to memorize John 11:35 because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. 
and we like, Master, he stinketh, because, you know, we're kids. But Jesus arrives at the grave, and I want you to pay close attention. Verse 38 of John 11, Jesus again being deeply moved within. Let's stop there. This text was written in the language of Greek. That phrase, deeply moved within, in the Greek means this. He flared his nostrils like a war horse. Jesus stands at a tomb and he snorts like a war horse. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe you sent me. And here we go, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, I love what he says here, and this is how we're going to shape the close of our message. Here is a miracle of love triumphant over death, a summons announcing Christ's declaration of war on death. I want to read that line again. A summons announcing Christ's declaration of war on death. A vow that death itself will be destroyed and put to death. Let's put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Jesus is our king. He's riding on a donkey. Don't understand it. Kings ride on horses. Comes up into town. They're throwing cloaks down. Well, what? He hasn't defeated Ahab. He hasn't defeated Jezebel. What, is, what are we throwing the cloaks for? Because according to tradition, they like to say the day before, he stood at a tomb, and he started snorting like a war horse. He was ready for battle, and his first fight was Lazarus' body. And he called that body out of the grave four days later. And it wasn't the end. It was the beginning. It wasn't the end of the war. It was the first battle. And he was victorious in the first battle. And notice this. Let's go back to Judges chapter 5. I told you you'd be jumping all over town. Judges chapter 5. Judges 5, you might remember the prophetess Deborah. You remember her? Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, verse 1. And what did they say, verse 2? For the leaders leading in Israel, for the people volunteering, bless the Lord. Hear, you kings, listen, you dignitaries. I myself, to the Lord, I myself will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, look at this. The earth quaked. Everybody say quaked. The heavens also dripped, and the clouds dripped water. 
she's saying, God, when you started marching off to war, earth didn't know what to do with itself. The ground started shaking and the, the, the heavens started crying. What does it say? It says, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. The Greek word there is seismos, seismic, earthquake, seismograph. A victorious king who had declared war on death rode in on a donkey. And the earth started to shake because this was not just a rabbi. This was not just a teacher. This was the God Deborah sang about. This was the God Barak sang about. This is the one when he marches out of Edom, the earth quakes and the sky cries. That's who this was. What would happen if Jesus rode into Burlington or Philadelphia or Camden or Cherry Hill? Wouldn't we want to see the earthquake again? Wouldn't we want to see the rain come again? Jesus is not a moralist who's coming in to rain on everybody's good times and say you can't do this and you can't do that. Jesus is a general. He's a king. He's a war horse who's riding into town to say, death, it's over for you. Jesus brings, the quaking of Jesus, it brings excitement to the oppressed. It brings movement and tremors of hope to those who have been on the outside. But let me tell you, it scares the ones who are in power. The same shaking that's setting some people free is setting some people out of their seats of power. I love this from Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus comes into our cities, and what does he do? He comes to free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery for all of their lives. So this morning, I want you to see him for who he is. And I hope we realize this was meant to just be a small example of the ways in which when we take Scripture seriously for what it is, not what we want it to be, the Holy Spirit can come in and show us Jesus time and time again. And he doesn't just show us who Jesus is. He shows us what Jesus is doing. And he doesn't just show us what Jesus is doing. He shows us how we can get in on what Jesus is doing. Because your town, your city, your street, your block needs people who are in on what Jesus is doing in your city and on your block and on your street. But how are we going to know if we never crack the book open? Remember what my friend Chris said at the beginning. This book, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, will transform us into the kind of people who can bring God's goodness to bear on our neighbors and our enemies. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And we're about to spend a week celebrating the fact that Jesus has already let death have its notice. He's already put it on notice. It's called Easter Sunday. It's called the resurrection. I love good preaching. I love good preaching, and one day I hope to do it. But until then, I like to look to the masters of preaching. There's a man in the history of the church who's known as the golden tongue preacher. I want a cool title like that at some point. Like, you know, like wrestlers and boxers, they have like these cool, like, 
the hammer or whatever. Like, I want to be like the golden tongue. Like, that's really amazing. 1,500 years ago, he preached. We don't have any audio recordings. Newsflash, right? No videos. But these brothers, they, they either wrote out or people actually transcribed their sermons. John Chrysostom, the golden tongue preacher, preached for Palm Sunday. And I can almost, I almost have to ask you to move over to the B3 for this one, but I'm just kidding. You don't have to. I can almost hear him start to, to tune up a little bit when he gets to the end of his Palm Sunday sermon. And one of the ways that preachers do this is by repetition. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of participate with me. At least all the Pentecostals, those who are willing to admit you are, let's, let's do it together. Because your line is this one. You know the line. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So we're going to practice that line together. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's his line. He's going to repeat that line. He's going to get it home. But I want you to realize everything that golden tongue is going to say, where did he get it from? Why do you think the apostle said you've got to rightly divide this? Because you can wrongly divide it. Foundations. Imagine this house. Just y'all have worn out Bibles. Filled with your notes. One of the most moving things that ever happened to me was a friend of mine. His father-in-law passed away. He had been a part of our church for years. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I went to the funeral. And I walked up to the casket at the front of the church. And there he laid with his Bible on his chest. And my friend looked at me, and he said, your dad gave him that Bible as a thank you for working on the building program. And they said, it's not going in the ground with him. I'm taking it out before they close the coffin. What are you leaving your children? A crisp, unworn, unmarked piece of memorabilia? Are you leaving them one worn out with tears? Leaving them worn out with notes and then notes you had to cross out because you learned a better way to read it. Which will happen, you know, that once a year that I come and I mess everything up for you. Oh, I thought it meant this. My mother-in-law. Well, what, how do I even know what the Bible means? Yes, Mom, that's the point. How do you even know what it means? What's our line? Our line is, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And we're going to imagine John preaching a close of our sermon this morning. You ready? Here we go. Blessed is he that... He, God against the devil... Not openly in his brilliant light, which no one can approach unto, but in the weakness of flesh to bind our strong enemy. Blessed is he, the king against our tyrant foe, not in the wisdom and majesty of his almighty power, but through what is thought the foolishness of the cross, to rob in his humility the wary serpent of his prey. Blessed is he. He, the true one against the father of lies. He is the savior against the destroyer. He, the prince of peace against him who causeth war. He who loveth men against him who hateth them. Blessed is he. He, the Lord, come to save man who had gone astray, to put an end to his wanderings, to bring to light those that live in darkness. 
he the good Samaritan to pour wine and oil into the wounds of him who had fallen among thieves and who was left to die uncared for. To save us through himself, as says the prophet, it was not an elder nor an angel, but the Lord himself who saved us. Would you close your eyes and just tell him thank you this morning? Would you close your eyes and just tell him how much you appreciate him? Jesus, show up in our city. Jesus, ride into my neighborhood. Jesus, would you show up on my street? Would you show up in my house? And would the earth start to quake? Would the heavens start to open when the, the general of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, arrives? Jesus, we honor you for your humility. You showed up on a donkey. You didn't show up to overpower us. You showed up to woo us, to draw us, to lure us closer with the fragrance of your very self, oh God. Jesus, we want to sense you in this room this morning. Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, the King of glory. Strong and mighty. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. Open up the gates of your hearts to him this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus in a way we've not seen him before. The living word. The one who is God the one who was with God in the beginning. Jesus, we bless you and we bless your name. You have received a name that is above every name. Right now, we bow our knees. We bow our hearts and we declare that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. We thank you for standing at Lazarus's tomb and declaring war on death, that enemy that had held us enslaved in fear, and you have set us free. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Come on and bless him this morning. Just bless him this morning. Come on and put your hands together and bless him this morning. We honor you. Come on and get on your feet for Jesus this morning. Would you get on your feet and bless the king this morning? Would you put your hands together and lift a shout of praise to the king this morning? Would you declare there's nobody like him? Oh, we bless your name, oh God. We honor you, Lord.